I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 11th, 2023. Coming up, we'll take a deep dive into the lives of the world's remaining bears and efforts to preserve them. Our guest is journalist Gloria Dickey, and her debut book was just published today. It's called Eight Bears, Mythic Past and Imperiled Future. Once upon a time, there were three bears. A big old papa bear, a medium-sized mama bear, and a little bitty old bear. And they all lived together in a little old bear house made of twigs and logs in a deep, deep forest. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. For those living on the Front Range or in the mountains, you've probably seen a black bear while hiking or even walking in your neighborhood. And you may be familiar with the conflicted and sometimes contentious relationships between humans and bears. While black bears are thriving, most of the other few remaining bear species on the planet are struggling to survive. Our guest today has spent the last several years traveling the globe and exploring these charismatic creatures, their legendary past, their threatened status today, and efforts to preserve their future. Gloria Dickey is an environmental journalist whose debut book was just published today. It's called Eight Bears, Mythic Past and Imperiled Future. As a freelance writer, Gloria has written for many publications, including the New York Times, High Country News, The Guardian, The Atlantic, National Geographic. She's currently based in London as a global climate and environment correspondent for Reuters. But as we'll discuss soon, Gloria's reporting career actually began right here in Boulder. She joins us now via phone from the Front Range. Gloria, welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. So great that you're here. So this Louis Armstrong song, The Three Bears, when I selected it, I didn't think of how prescient in a way it seems in that maybe you can tell us that these, I mean, many more species than the eight remaining ones now, but you say in the book that we're kind of at this tipping point and perhaps by the end of the century, we actually will be down to three. I want to start by having you read this poignant passage in your opening about this human-bear relationship. Great. So I was often struck by the leniency and grace extended towards bears I encountered, particularly when compared with other predators. The state wildlife agencies in North America are tasked with killing so-called problem bears. Many people strive to prevent such needless death. The gruff men with feathered hands and burnished specimens I met in Montana would never abide wolves or coyotes. A howl on the breeze had them reaching for their gun. But bears were another matter. The distinction puzzled me. Why were bears put in a different class from the other predators on the landscape? Perhaps it was because of our own social constructions. The first animal form we encounter in the world is often a bear, a cribbed companion that accompanies us in our formative years. Later, in childhood, parents read bedtime stories featuring bears as fairy tale heroes. Winnie the Pooh, the Berenstein Bears, Rupert Bear, Paddington. 
By imbuing bears with whimsical nature during infancy, had we unwittingly crafted a complicated relationship with the species. Consider the fairy tale antagonists. The big bad wolf reigns supreme in Red Riding Hood and the Three Little Pigs. But I have yet to encounter a tale featuring villainous bear, though brown bears likely still roam Germany's Black Forest, the ground zero of fairy tales, when the Brothers Grimm were spinning their most famous yarns. In Goldilocks and the Three Bears, arguably the most notable piece of bear folklore, our ire is not directed toward the bear family, but rather the intrusive human. Robert Southey, the English poet who first wrote the printed version in 1837, describes three bachelor bears, a little small wee bear, a middle-sized bear, and a great huge bear, as good-natured, trusting, harmless, and hospitable, as polite as bears can be. In contrast, Goldilocks is characterized as impudent, foul-mouthed, ugly, and dirty. Initially, he wrote her as a silver-haired old woman. Later iterations would transform her into a blonde damsel or child. This triumvirate of friendly bears is the unwitting victim of a narcissistic human who breaks into their home, eats their porridge, and splinters wee bear's beloved chair. Then, when all is said and done, she passes out in their bed. Our modern reality does not differ much from this fabled world. We have entered the bear's home without permission and selfishly laid claim to what we found there. In the words of wee bear, someone's been my bed, and, well, here we are. Oh, that's so powerful. Both this sort of mythical and then the storytelling relationship, but essentially we have made them too whimsical and sort of comical and cute, love them to death, in a sense. Mm. Yeah, I think when it's, when it's convenient for us, right, there's, I think what's really interesting about bears and human relationships to bears is this duality to it, right? On the one hand, we have these cute, clumsy kind of clowns of the forest that, you know, fill our stories and our, you know, childhood bed, <laughs> bedtime stories. And on the other hand, there's like this fear element too, where we never know what to expect with a bear. And in, in, in one hand, they can also be these like vicious killers that we're afraid of. And, you know, a lot of books, you know, they're either childhood bedtime stories or they're, you know, attack, attack recounts of, you know, ferocious bears in the forest. Yeah, to say nothing of Yogi the Bear. In Yosemite and national parks, speak a bit to, to that and sort of the, the negative repercussions of that history. Yeah, I mean, the, the picnic basket is the, uh, what everyone thinks of. But I mean, nowadays, if Yogi were to steal a picnic basket, <laughs> most likely a wildlife ranger would come along and shoot the bear, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, places, America's national parks have a really complex relationship with bears. There was a time that we saw in Yosemite, you know, bear feeding shows. Bears were turned into commercial enterprise to attract tourists, you know, in dumps and landfills. Um, and obviously that's changed quite a bit, but it's left this kind of legacy of um, bear or chaos in some areas. Yeah. Why don't you name the characters, effectively, in your book, the eight bears that are the, the remaining bears. species <laughs> now? Yeah. Sure. And, yeah, no, I mean, we're all familiar with, I think, the North American kind of three bears, um, but I will run fast. You have the American black bear. You have the brown bear, of which the grizzly bear is a subspecies, uh, not a species unto itself. You have the polar bear and the panda. And those are probably the four best-known bears. And then we also have the moon bear and the sun bear, which live in Asia. We have the spectacle bear, which lives in the Andes. And we have the sloth bear, which lives in the Indian subcontinent. Yeah, I didn't even know the sloth bear. And um, before we get into some of the specifics of the different bears, I wanted to ask you, since I love that your book starts with you 
in Boulder. It wasn't too many years ago when you were a grad student in the journalism program. Tell us about sort of why you took on and how you took on this topic of bears and the relationship yeah. with humans. Yeah, Boulder was definitely the point of inspiration. So I'd moved here back in 2013 to do my master's in environmental journalism. And I moved here at a time when there was a lot of headlines in, you know, the Daily Camera talking about uh, conflicts between bears up, you know, on the hill, getting into trash. Uh, CPW was was euthanizing some of these bears um, that had returned that were in their schoolyards. I think it was a few months after the kind of falling bears near the campus. So a lot of conflicts with that. And there was a Citizens are trying to get uh, a bear-resistant garbage-proof bin bylaw passed uh, at the local city council. And Boulder at the time would have been the largest city in North America to have tried to implement this kind of um, ordinance to, to protect bears and to protect people. And so I started reporting on that for during my master's and looking at kind of human bear conflict over trash across the West. I went to some really nice places like Lake Tahoe and Aspen and took photos of garbage cans <laughs> and bears that had broken into them. Um, and then that kind of led to more reporting. I wrote about, you know, grizzly bears for High Country News, started doing more work on polar bears, but kind of just that relationship between bears and people definitely first began uh, in Boulder. Interesting. Well, let's um, dive in starting with the black bear. It seems the most... Mm, good news, really, among the bears in terms of their population and their range, and that uh, they're called in many places the urban bear. First, what is the good news here in terms of their range in North America and elsewhere and their population size, like relative to even yeah. just the 1950s? Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the American black bear is the world's most populous bear, I believe, between Canada and the U.S., about 900,000 of them, mm. you know, which is substantial considering some of you know the pandas below 2,000 bears left. So it's it's, it's quite populous. Um, but what we are seeing on a sort of a more individual basis is that these bears are increasingly being found in urban areas from, you know, Yonkers to Boston to, mm. to Boulder, and, you know, even down into Denver. And that's largely due to... Oh, could you say that again? We're breaking up a bit. Just keep the phone close. You said it's down. Yeah. It's because of what? Food. Food attracts human food, right? So they're coming in search of food, you know, dumpsters, they're spilling over in alleyways, and they're, they're drawn in by that, and that's where you start to get conflicts. Um, but it is a sign that their numbers are generally doing well. They've recovered since, you know, we used to have more black bear hunting still exists in America, but there used to be much more of it. And in some states, they'd almost disappeared kind of by the mid-20th century. So we're starting to see a return of the American black bear, but they're also coming into areas where we might not necessarily want them to be because of food. And that's why it's so important that people adequately manage, you know, their garbage to avoid these kinds of conflicts. Yeah, I remember when I came here in 2001 and lived it up at Chautauqua and thought, oh, how cool these bears are walking around in my front porch. And <laughs> it was like a neon sign pointing to the garbage bins. It wasn't until I think a few years after that, that the city uh, adapted and got much more bear proof bags. I mean, when you've got a neon sign and saying free food, what are they going to do? What yeah. what kind of scorecard would you give, say, Boulder County and Front Range in terms of bear management now? And you know, maybe as a as a subset of that, public perceptions of bears in urban yeah. areas or these interface areas. From what I've seen, I mean, I think Boulder is on the lead. Pretty good job, especially since they implemented this, this ordinance in 2014. However, that only applies to those houses I think west of Broadway, so it's not 
it's not citywide at this point, um, but I think that in terms of the euthanization affairs, that, that has decreased since it kind of was peaking in the early 2010s. Um, and certainly it's better than what I've heard is happening in places like Aspen or Lake Tahoe. Um, but I think, too, I mean, Boulder is a bit unique in that it is just, it's just so close to the mountains here. It's like at that wildland urban interface. Um, so it's hard to manage everything. But, you know, when I lived here, and I think it still goes on, there was a Boulder. Oops, we just lost you. Sorry, there was a there was a what? There was a boulder bear sitting group where it was people would sit underneath trees waiting for bears to be able to safely return to the mountains at night. And there's also groups of volunteers who try and strip apple trees bare in the fall to make sure that the bears aren't being coming into town to eat the apples and getting into trouble. So there's definitely a lot of community led, um, I think, initiatives. Well, we dropped you a little bit, but. um... It sounds like some community-led initiatives and city-wide initiatives have helped in that problem. I was struck by how you said how human behavior has altered the behavior of bears to the extent that many of them who come into these interface areas are no longer going into torpor or hibernation. Yeah, that's the really interesting thing. The combination of rising temperatures as well as being food being available year-round is kind of messing with the natural signal that bears should be dying down for the year, right? And so they're staying up and they're eating all night, and that's a problem. They have more time to get into trouble, to get killed on roads. Mm. Um, so that's that's a really significant change that we're seeing in the Western U.S. right now. What are, are there some changes physiologically that are happening in them? You know, it seems their whole circadian rhythm, or maybe that's not quite the rhythm we're talking about here, but if they're not, do they just burn that many more calories, even though I know they're eating tons of free food over the winter, but how how do they change? Yeah, one of the really tricky things is so bears experience something called delayed implantation, which is when the female becomes pregnant in the fall or in the summer, it won't necessarily implant so that she becomes pregnant unless she gains enough weight for the winter. She'll just reabsorb the embryo. It's kind of like a signal from nature being like, it's a bad food year, oh. don't have cubs into this environment. But what's happening is that we're seeing, and this has been the case quite a bit in California during the drought, is these bears are still able to find food. They're becoming pregnant when they probably shouldn't be becoming pregnant. And then they're giving birth to cubs into a drought where there's no food except for human food, and it just makes the problem that much worse. So we're seeing that kind of population level change. And then again, we're seeing bears, in some cases, they're stopping hibernation because it's warmer and they don't... Uh, you said they're stopping hibernation and they don't. Oh, so we broke up a bit. Let's hope uh, you can hear me, Gloria. Um, I wanted to go to one of the, or a couple of the lesser known bears, at least around here, and that are the twin moon and sun bears in Asia. And man, horrific accounts you have of these so-called bear bile farms. Maybe talk about what's going on now with that and then efforts to preserve them. Yeah, so across Asia, um, bear bile, which is basically the bile that's found in the gallbladder, is used in traditional Chinese medicine. That's been the case for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, but the practice by which this is done within the recent decades has been quite cruel. It used to be that bears were poached from the wild and their whole gallbladder was carved out and used for medicine. But nowadays they're taking bears from the wild and they're putting them on these farms typically kept in really tight, small, cramped cages. Wow, so tight, cramped cages where they can hardly even move, right? And and then what do they do to them on a daily basis? 
Yeah, so it varies a bit by country, but typically in China, for example, they kind of have a catheter that's just constantly extracting the bile. Wow. In Vietnam, they knock them out with ketamine to take the bile out, and then they use that, you know, for various ailments. Um, but it's a, it's a life of suffering for the bears that are a victim of this. And for those bears who are a victim of this, I mean, it struck me in reading the book that Unlike a lot of things like the rhino tusks and tiger parts, where there's really no scientific medical basis for their beneficial use in medicine. But the bear bile actually does have medical evidence behind it, including a few years ago, right? FDA approval. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the, the bear bile, it's, it's not a complete snake oil cure. It is being studied and tested for some of those uh, kind of neurodegenerative diseases, uh, especially because it's kind of used to stave off um, basically cell death in bears when they hibernate. So it's thought, well, you know, humans could use this too to perhaps counter some of those more severe ailments that we encounter. Um, but the problem is that people in Asia, they're not using it to treat, you know, Parkinson's disease or Lou Gehrig's disease. They're using it for sore joints. They're using it for the common cold, things that other, you know, medicines could, you know, be used with instead. Um, but we also have seen China try to promote bare bile for COVID recently, too. So it's, Oh, wow. Yeah, and right and I take it no scientific basis for that? I don't think it's been studied yet. Oh. <laughs> there are some actually American scientists who are interested in looking at it as well. You can kind of make a synthetic bear bile. You don't actually need real bear bile to get those, those same benefits. So what about in places like Vietnam, where the farms are, and China, where a lot of it's used in medicine? Is there much of a groundswell of opposition to this to put a stop? To at least on the demand side, if not the supply side. Yeah, we are seeing a sea change, especially in Vietnam. So Vietnam had the government has pushed that every single bear that was left on one of these bio farms needed to be moved in sanctuary by 2022. It's a little bit delayed because of COVID, but there's been a kind of this building boom of sanctuaries that NGOs are putting up across the country to get all of these bears from the farms to like these nice peaceful sanctuaries where they can spend the remaining days. China's been a little bit trickier. Um, it's more of a billion-dollar pharmaceutical industry there. It's not kind of this um, kind of grassroots bear bile farming that Vietnam has, where it's a lot of families who have a bear or two. Um, so I think there's been some public sentiment shift in China, but it's definitely a bit harder to move than in Vietnam right now. So um, if you've joined us late, my guest is journalist Gloria Dickey, and we're discussing her just-published first book. It's called Eight Bears, Mythic Past an imperiled future. So speaking of China, why don't we jump to the beloved panda bear? And that scene, well, it is, as you describe in the book, one of the three that may be remaining or, or thriving anyway by the end of this century. Uh, what did you see there? Take us to the mountains in China where you went to this area. Sure. So I had a very, I think, enviable experience mm -hmm. in China where I was able to volunteer as a panda keeper for the day <laughs> at one of these facilities where they have a bunch of captive red bears or bears that have been in different zoos. Taishan from the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. is there. And so I got to spend the day, you know, I put on a little blue jumpsuit, went into the enclosures, you know, sucked up panda poop, delivered food. I did get to also <laughs> hand feed a panda, which was definitely a life highlight. Um, but yeah, China's, I mean, it, it's really interesting. And I, you know, I, I kind of say that I think that the panda will prosper, even though there's fewer than 2,000 left, just because of how much we've seen China invest 
in panda conservation, in breeding these bears in captivity, they're beginning to try to reintroduce them to the wild. So we're definitely seeing a pretty concerted effort uh, to make sure that the panda, you know, the symbol of the World Wildlife Fund, does not go extinct. And of all the bears that are being bred in captivity, is this the most successful so far, the panda? It's successful in terms of genetic diversity, mm. in terms of, you know, what are these berries being used for? Well, we're often seeing them being used as kind of diplomatic bargaining chips as opposed to having a conservation purpose behind them. So of the 600 or more bears that have been bred in captivity since, you know, the 1980s, fewer than 20 have been put into the wild. Those that have, have died often, they've, you know, fallen off cliffs or they've been unable to cope with predators. Mm. So it's successful in, in, in depending on how you define it. I'm sure China would say it's very successful. Um, you know, a lot of zoos uh, get pandas after China's kind of shored up a beneficial trade deal with them. Whenever they want to build soft power, countries get pandas. Yeah, this so-called panda diplomacy or bribery in some case sounds like it is a main reason why they continue to breed them. Is it? Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm curious to see what will happen now. I think, you know, during the 1990s and the 2010s, China cared a lot about what other countries thought of it in terms of kind of cultural clout. I'm not sure that they care so much, you know, in the post-COVID years. So we'll see what happens with panda distribution and, you know, whether pandas are being called home to China in the coming years. We have seen a few pandas be returned just in 2023 already. Um, so, yeah, TBD on the future of, of panda diplomacy, I think. Yeah. And then... Um We've got a few more minutes, so I want to ask you about polar bears. I know I was with you in the Arctic several years ago, and you've done quite a bit of uh, research and reporting on them in Norway's Arctic. What was a sense of your encounters with the bear biologists and the bears themselves, and then we can talk about their status in terms of conservation. Yeah, yeah. So I went up to Svalbard where I interviewed some of the folks uh, around Longyear, you know, about how they deal with, you know, bears coming to town. They've had someone killed uh, in recent years at a campsite just on the very perimeter of town. Someone was sleeping, you know, in their tent and a bear came in and mauled them to death. Um, I also went to Churchill, Manitoba, which is kind of the world quite a few times to speak with scientists for testing military radar systems to try and warn when bears are coming near town. They've had some attacks in recent years as well, um, and we have seen attacks kind of increasing in some parts of the Arctic uh, as bears spend more time on land due to melting sea ice. Yeah, and this, like, what are the population numbers looking like now, globally, given, as you said, the sea ice is melting so quickly as the water's warm? Yeah. The program is actually still pretty high globally, but the concern is that they're kind of heading towards this cliff edge, you know, by mid-century, where once the sea ice is gone, so too are the polar bears. And so, you know, some of Inuit groups are thinking, well, no, the polar bear populations are doing pretty well. Look, there's more near my house. But scientists are all very concerned because we are seeing, you know, some populations could begin to disappear by as early as 2060, 2070, especially those in, like, the lower Churchill, Manitoba, where a lot of people are most familiar with polar bears. So the kind of long-term forecast for polar bears is very, very bad. Oh, boy. Um, and I know we haven't gotten to the spectacled or the sloth bear, <laughs> but you, I will be saying later that you'll be speaking this week, so those can come and see you and hear more. But when I want to ask you, like, what stands out as a particularly impactful encounter that you had with them or wanted to have but didn't see them or yeah, what you I mean, saw? The tricky thing with writing a book about animals is that you can't always guarantee that you'll see them in the wild, right? 
Um, I guess the slot there for me was quite fascinating in that, you know, you kind of go into these areas of preconceptions of what people are going to think about bears. And, and, and say a little bit about actually, what, what that area was, where you, where you uh, well, see the sloth bear. In, yeah, so I went into areas around Gujarat, went into Madhya Pradesh in central India to meet in very rural areas where people mm. are living alongside all sorts of wildlife, from sloth bears to leopards to tigers. And they're pretty afraid of sloth bears, and sloth bears attack a lot of people. They're actually the world's deadliest bear in terms of how many people are attacked and killed by bears each year. Despite that mellow season. title. You'd think they'd be <laughs> slow and mellow, but no. No, no, it is, it is quite the misnomer. Um, but yeah, you might think that, you know, the polar bear is the deadliest, but of course, you know, the sloth bear lives near a lot of people. So when I was traveling there, you know, I was meeting people constantly who'd, you know, were showing off the, you know, pretty severe injuries that they'd gotten from sloth bears and, you know, they were lucky they lived. Um, so it was quite interesting to meet all these people who had a very different relationship to bears than I think we have in North America. And the bear is definitely something to be feared and something that is frequently killed uh, out of revenge as well for these attacks on people. Mm, so complex, the different relationships and as we've developed. Well, Gloria Dickey, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. Great to have you. That was Reuters journalist Gloria Dickey. Her first book called Eight Bears, Mythic Past and Imperiled Future was just published today by W.W. Norton. Gloria will speak tonight at 6 o'clock at the Tattered Cover Bookstore's McGregor Square location in downtown Boulder. That's at 1991 Wazi Street. It'll be a conversation with journalist Michael Codis, author of Megafire. And then tomorrow night at 6.30, Gloria will speak at the Boulder Bookstore. That's at 1107 Pearl Street. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show is produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Louis Armstrong. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.